0: Welcome today. Uh, just a reminder after service today, we're going to have a picnic. Some of you may be uh, new here visiting. Um, come unprepared. Mm, bring your own picnic is what we're doing today. So uh, you can figure that out. After the service, by the way, just a bunch of you guys, if you can just uh, join. I know Chuck Dean's going to kind of lead the effort of just go downstairs, get tables, get chairs, bring it out here, and uh, we'll we'll be ready to eat. Just super excited about that. Well, we have a, a quiz here today. just want to ask you who these men are. Jim Elliott is one. Who else? Nate Saint. Nate Saint. Who else? Three other friends, right? Yep, yep. Pete Udarian. Roger Udarian, rather. Ed McCauley. And one more. Pete Fleming, good. And these five, of course, you know, probably know their story well, but we need to tell it again today. Just a good, good reminder, the 1950s, they went down to Ecuador to reach out to the Wadani people, a people who'd known for their savagery, killed all the strangers that had come into their tribe before they came, and as they reached out to the Wadani people, they, uh, they, they had a plane. They figured out they could circle around and a big rope and leave a basket down there. And they left gifts for 13 straight weeks in order to show some kindness and goodwill. And one of those weeks, they, they, they received a return gift on the way back. So they thought things were going well as they went to this tribe. And then on January 3rd, um, on January 3rd 1956, they, they landed on Palm Beach. It's about five miles from where the Waodani tribe was. Uh, Typically, they they set up camp and they waited for the the tribe. They had a loudspeaker and so were were announcing where they were and inviting people to come, if you will. And eventually then three people came on the other side of the river. There was a a man, a a young man, and and then two women, a a younger woman and then uh, an older woman. And then the missionaries encouraged them to come and it was kind of awkward and they were scared and they tried to helped them feel uh, comforted. They, they gave him some lemonade and some food, which they enjoyed. They, they gave a, a model airplane to the man. He particularly enjoyed that. Not much conversation took place, but the man was particularly interested in the aircraft. And here's the picture of the man on that beach. He wasn't wearing much, but that's the attitude and perspective of how they're going after him, like how they're looking to, to reach out to these people. Um, and Nate Saint, the pilot, he was really interested. He gave him a ride. You picture this guy, right, from this tribe. He gets in the plane for the first time, and he flies him up and around. And he landed, and he wanted more, and so he flew him up, and then he flew over the tribe, wherever they were. And, and the story is that he was in there, and he's leaning out and saying, "Hey, hey, hey!" And all his friends down there, "Hey, look at me, woohoo!" Just having this wonderful time is what he was doing. They had had a great time. Eventually, then they landed after their encounter. The the natives went back in the forest and back in the homes, and uh, Ed McCauley wrote in his journal, January 6th, this is a great day for the advance of the gospel of Christ in Ecuador. And two days later, then uh, Sunday, January 8th, 1956, the missionaries landed the plane on the same beach, waited for a same, another encounter, but this encounter wasn't so friendly. The missionaries weren't met by three people, they were met by a mob of angry men who attacked them with spears and uh, killed all five of them right there on their beach. They threw their bodies in the river and then returned home. It's a great tragedy. Five missionaries had come on a mission of love only to be killed by a, a tribe filled with hatred towards them for no reason at all. But as is often the case in God's economy... These, what these tribal people meant for evil, God meant it for good, Genesis 50, verse 20. And and uh, when the missionaries were missing, Christian radio picked up on this and uh, began pop, uh, broadcasting in the States of the story about these Christian missionaries reaching out to this savage, violent tribe in Ecuador, found missing, where they're feared dead. And churches began to pray for missionaries. In fact, I even spoke to... a. Uh, an older saint in the Lord who told me that he remembers the day when uh, the, the radio were, were all about these missing missionaries down in Ecuador. The following day, four of their bodies were found by the United States Air Force um, and uh, Rescue Service who came in with a, a helicopter uh, to the site of the murders. And they recovered four of the bodies. The fifth disappeared down the river Churches across the nation mourn the death of these missionaries. Life Magazine got hold of the story a few days after the tragedy. Then they sent a world-renowned photojournalist to Ecuador to document the story. Within a month of their death, they had a 10-page spread in, the, in Life Magazine. And uh, here's, a, here's a picture of the first two pages of that article. I think it's January 30th edition, 1956 and, and for you kids who are young, you need to realize that back then, like Life Magazine, what's published there is known to the world. Like today, we have so many media outlets, and anyone can start a, a YouTube channel, and anyone can start a blog, and it's just like so disseminated. But back then, when they only had a few magazines and only a few stations, like this is what's known to the world. And the headline here reads, Go and preach the gospel. Five do and die. And uh, they quoted, uh, this photojournalist had gone down and interviewed the wives. You can kind of see all five of the wives right there as he's interviewing them and talking to them about what happened. And uh, <clears throat> one, the article quotes Jim Elliot, who said, uh, our orders are the gospel to every creature. And uh, the article also quotes from Jim Elliot's journal from about five years earlier. It says, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. And this magazine then brought national attention to what happened in Ecuador. The result is revived interest in missions. Untold numbers of young people then rose up to give their lives to Christ in foreign lands. And uh, this event then became the catalyst for pushing so many young people into the mission field as they saw the, uh, just the heroism, if you will, or the sacrifice of these five men. Elizabeth Elliott then wrote this book, uh, Through the Gates of Splendor. And uh, she said this, she said, to the world at large, this is a sad waste of five young lives, but God has his plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach. And then she gave a sample list of all the lives that were changed. And uh, here here are a few of the examples she shares. She says, an Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join the Mission Aviation Fellowship seeing how helpful the plane was in order to reach these people. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room and then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life completely over to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those five. Just I want to I do this. I, I, I want to go. And, and my guess is the full number of those who went out as missionary because of what happened were numbered in the thousands is what my, my guess is. But well, the number's not complete because the writings of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot are still being read today and young people being prompted in their lives, really being challenged in their lives. What is it that, that their life is going to be about? What, what are they going to really live for? What are they going to die for? Well, as we dig into our Bible this morning, we have a, a tragic event. that's the catalyst for the first missionary event, the first missionary movement in the church. And the event was the death of Stephen. His death certainly was tragic, right? but, but, but it was used by God to spread the gospel my title my message this morning is persecution spreads the gospel now for those of you children who are in cc you probably recognize this persecution spreads the gospel yes you recognize this (laughs) eva you do absolutely good and uh here we go so if you can invite open your bibles to acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 8 if you haven't done so already i invite you to do so now and just know this that, that Acts 8 and Acts 7 in this story have the potential even to, to stir others in the same way that people have been stirred by uh, the story of, of Jim Elliot and his friends. In fact, I was approached by a young person last week after I finished my message and was told how encouraging the message was. And just even thinking about just what it means to really live for Christ, to be so bold in your preaching that even you would be willing to die for him. And so Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8 have that same potential. In fact, even maybe more than does the story of of Jim Elliot and the the five who died in Ecuador. Before we actually read, just want to quickly set the context. Stephen was a young, spirit-filled, zealous believer who was preaching the gospel to those who were in Jerusalem. They didn't like his words, and they killed him. Chapter 7 ends with this. He fell asleep, that is, he died. And chapter 8 then picks up on this death. The first half describes the reality of the persecution the first century church faced. And then the second half describes the results then of that persecution, the gospel spread. So let's look at here at our our first point. Here it is persecution verses one through three. First off, we, we see Saul mentioned and he approved of Stephen's execution. That is, he was in agreement with it. He saw it and gave hearty approval to it. In fact, that's how the New American Standard translate this, trying to bring about a bit more intensive reality of this, that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. <clears throat> that is, Paul was sort of cheering them on. Yes, go. Yes, he was cheering them. Now, for some reason, it looks like Saul himself wasn't involved in throwing the actual stones. If you look back in chapter 7 and verse 58, we see Saul... like being in charge of the garments the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named saul so so apparently there, there was everybody here and uh the stoning was taking place but before they stoned him right they had to had to take off their shirts and their cloaks and they laid them down and saul was sort of keeping them and maybe he folded them up for them or something and he, he kept them there while they they stoned the young, um stephen and maybe this whole clue was the, the fact he's called a young man. Like, why, why wasn't Saul throwing stones as well? And it may be here that he was a, a young man, right? Too young to be involved in that honor of killing a heretic. You know, I remember when I was a senior in, in uh, high school, and I was playing on the basketball team, the varsity basketball team for our, our school, and my younger brother was in the eighth grade. He was too young to play on the team. He wasn't even in high school yet, but he could cheer us on. And in fact, he became our ball boy um and he would uh, even travel with us on the team bus to the games and he'd roll out the balls and he'd give them the ball so we can kind of shoot and practice and he'd gather them all up and he'd sit right behind the bench and he would cheer us on and no one cheered louder for our team than my my brother did but he couldn't play because he was too young you know i think maybe that's what Saul was he was sort of like an equipment manager taking care of the uniforms and cheering everyone else on And I would not doubt that he'd allowed loud cheers, right, when a a stone hit Stephen just strategically, right, when when it cracked his head or when it hit his back or when it hit his arm or did some good damage, like really cheering, probably what Saul was doing. Proverbs 10, verse 23 says, doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. And uh, Saul loved persecuting the people of God. It was sport to him. And he was on the bench and he was cheering. But he wasn't always on the bench. He he got in the game. In verse 3 we see Saul getting in the game. It says Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Apparently he could be involved in that activity if he couldn't be involved in the stoning activity. Paul wasn't simply a bystander when it came to persecuting the church. No, he was right in the midst of it. He was going house to house, knocking on doors. Hello? Hello? Johan? Are you in there? Johan? Johan? And if Johan didn't open up, he was breaking down the door perhaps. And even I've heard, you're a Christian. He takes Johan, he takes his wife, and he grabs them away, handcuffs them, binds them up, whatever, and brings them away to prison to face charges of heresy. Perhaps so they might be stoned like Stephen was. And Paul here is just ruthless. You, you can even see that here in the sense where it says that he, he, he took off men and women. He dragged off men and women. Like even routing armies, when they come, they kill the men. And sometimes they leave the women. Or sometimes they take the women for themselves. But it's the men they kill and the women they take for themselves. But here even Paul was, was just ravaging both men and women just to, to heighten how evil his, his wickedness was. You say, why was Paul doing this? Well, because he was a zealous man who was convinced of his worldview, he hated the church of Jesus Christ and tried everything possible to eliminate the church from the face of the earth. And, of course, it wasn't possible to eliminate the church. What happened was the believers scattered and Paul wasn't able to corral them in. It was a, a little bit like the marbles that are, are spilled on the floor and you start trying to grab them they start all, going all around. You don't know how exactly to go after all these marbles, all these people. You couldn't do that. As they scattered. We see that in verse one, how how they did scatter. On that day arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Now, now we see here even in, in chapter eight, verse one, about that day. That day was a, a big day. It referred to the very day when Stephen was stoned to death. It was a day that marked a turning point in the life of the church really forever. It it launched really the first missionary movement that went out. And those in the early church never forgot that day because Stephen, one of the brightest, young, promising leaders of the early church, was a bold and knowledgeable preacher. Very gifted and able. And he was cut down in the prime of life. And that's why verse 2, it seems to make sense that, that there was great grief over his death. Devout men buried stephen and made great lamentation over him you know that's that's always the response when when a promising young godly person dies Uh, here's another little quiz anyone know who this is who keith green you got it because kind of got we're the same age we're a little little older right we remember keith green and he died at age 28 he was a great worship leader great zealous for the kingdom and And, and was just known around america as a as a great passionate, gifted man. He died in a plane crash in 1982 when it was overloaded with a bunch of his friends. His wife and child died there. and It was a tragedy because he was doing so much good for the kingdom, and much mourning took place over uh over keith green right but but really w- with him right we don 't know what in fact and Nancy do you remember what day he died quiz quiz. I thought his wife did. No, only his, child. only his child. Okay, so I'm sorry. I misspoke. Thank you for correcting me. Um, I know, but anyway, we don't know the date when he died. But with Stephen, they knew the date he died. Now there are sometimes in the in the history of our of our nation, we know that there are days like what. What day was this? We know, right? September 11th, 2001. Like they're, they're, that would, when they think of Stephen, they could have told you it was October seventh, right, thirty-three A.D., thirty-seven A.D., whatever it was. They they knew exactly when that was, just like we know September eleventh. What about this one? When was this happen? December seventh, nineteen forty-one. The attack on Pearl Harbor, right? When the United States was drawn into the, to World War II. right? We just know that day. And so, likewise, these people knew that day when the stoning of Stephen took place. And the church on that day was, uh, arose a time of great persecution. Look, look what it says there. And there arose on that day a great persecution. Now, it's not the church was never persecuted before this. Remember, Peter and John, as they, they were out preaching the gospel, they were brought in several times into the Sanhedrin. And, and the first time they were just rebuked, and, and they spent nights in jail. Because of preaching the gospel, and they were brought in and then whipped and scourged before they were released. Persecution was taking place. I trust you remember that. But that was persecution, but it's great persecution when they start killing you and they start playing for keeps. That's why Luke calls, it, I think, a great persecution. Forever, the church would remember that day. That day when we were scattered. Maybe you remember the day that that. Uh, covid hit i remember it was friday the 13th of march right that day when the world kind of just all changed and this was the day the church just totally changed it all transformed and they scattered look at the second half of verse one and they were all scattered throughout the regions of judea and samaria except for the apostles just, this really seems like the only natural response to persecution is to is to to flee you know, when Jesus sent out His first, first uh, apostles to preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, He told them this in Matthew 10, verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, what are you supposed to do? Flee to the next, right? From one town, you persecute, you just flee to the And that's what they did in Jerusalem. They were persecuting that town, and so they, they fled to the next. That's the wise thing to do. Proverbs 27, verse 12. The prudent sees danger and hides himself. But the simple go on and suffer for it. And those who were in Jerusalem were facing danger of being stoned. And so they did the wise thing. They just, they left. They hid themselves. They they, they fled. And notice here, it's interesting, who fled? Verse 1 says that all were scattered except the apostles. That is a surprise. I mean, typically, right, when persecution takes place, it's the leaders of the organization who are in much danger, in most danger, and and the persecuting people are going to come and try to get the leaders because they're the most visible and if you focus your attention upon the leaders, you get them, you strike the shepherd and the sheep will, will scatter, is the idea. You get the leader of an organization and the people will disperse. The threat will be calmed down. That's always how it is. During the days of persecution, the pastors were captured and thrown in jail. Not so much the people of the church. It was Peter and John, the preachers of the early church, who were arrested and brought in for questioning. And later in the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul fleeing persecution when it came. Right? Not the people so much, because Paul was the, the vocal one, acts 923 through25. when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Paul, but their plot became known to him and they're watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. but the disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket so that Paul could flee and get out because they're trying to kill the leader. Well, that's not the case here. the apostles didn't flee, they remained and it was the people who scattered. Now, Luke mentioned here that um, in verse 1 that they were scattered, all of them scattered. So you just try to picture this in your mind, right? They all scattered except the apostles. Now, some take this literally and they believe that every believer in Jerusalem fled and you had only 12 believers left in Jerusalem at this time because you had only the apostles. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly what it means because you got logistically, that's just difficult. We got... 10,000 people perhaps, just leaving on that day, just all gone, and uh, migrating out of the city. It might be the case, but I I doubt it, Um, just because verse 3 then doesn't make any sense. Why is Paul ravaging the church if the church is all gone? And so I think that just by context here, you got to see all, not as every last believer, but all carrying some weight, and many, many were going out of that city. It means a large chunk Lots of people spreading, but not the apostles. They remained. And so you say, wh- why they remain? What were they doing when they were remaining? Well, they're probably strengthening the souls of the disciples who were in the city, who were facing some persecution, who, who were facing the fear of Saul coming along and knocking at their door, probably continuing to resist the religious authorities and doing everything they can politically. But they're probably some kind of small group of people, and maybe they had flashbacks to to the early days when Jesus ascended into heaven. You remember that day the believers were only small in number. It was the, the apostles and everyone was gathered in the upper room. There were like 120 of them and they were gathering and praying and confused. And, and, and maybe they would gather the apostles and um, in this a, in a small, tight group of people and they're they're sort of confused about what's going to happen. Now that this persecution is, has happened and remaining in this, this little group in danger but turning to one another for support. You want to create some community and that's sort of community that you can create. And I'm sure that they were strong as the apostles were there trying to strengthen them. But but notice where these people were scattered. They scattered, chapter 8, verse 1, throughout Judea and Samaria. Um, now, it only makes sense, you think about it, if you're in Jerusalem, there's Jerusalem right there. And uh, if you look, you can see Judea and uh, Samaria. Those are the the closest regions right around right if you were forced to flee where would you flee you might flee up north to beloit or you might flee down south maybe to rochelle we would go someplace close if you flee i'm gonna to go to i'm gonna flee uh, rockford i'm gonna to go to africa <laughs> you're not gonna do that you're not gonna flee halfway around the world you're just gonna go close by because many of these people are probably waiting for some of the persecution to subside and so they can safely come back into the the city they went to judea and samaria is that name ring a bell Where else have we heard Judea and Samaria in the same verse? Great commission. Yep. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And that's what happened. First they were in Jerusalem and now they're fleeing to Judea and Samaria. Now, Now sadly... I think in some regard, sadly, it, it took some persecution to push them out. The the apostles and the church at this time was just in Jerusalem. And I, I think you sense even from this text that so they're just content right there in Jerusalem. But God said, you need to scatter. You, you need to go out. Maybe it's a little bit like the Tower of Babel. When they, they were building, they were building this big tower. God had told them to, to multiply over all the face of the earth. They just stayed in, in Babylon, in Babel. And so he scattered them and confused their language here. Likewise, the persecution comes and he, he scatters them. Just helpful even for us. Right? Are, are, we, are we obeying the Lord? Are we scattering appropriately? are we just fine and happy right in our own little kingdom here? There needs to be a, a willingness to go is, is, is what is here. Even when Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses both in these places. The apostles should have taken initiative and done it before God caused them to go out. Now, I love what what these believers did. They they were witnesses of the Lord, both in Judea and Samaria. Look at chapter 8 and verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were witnesses for Jesus. Exactly what the book of Acts is calling us to. Which brings us to the second point. We've seen the persecution and now we see what it produces. It it produces preaching. Verses 4 through 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word and now is where you see the title of my message this morning that persecution spreads the gospel we have persecution and then we see that then spreading the gospel and, and spreading spreading that out in the book of acts here we see the believers scattered and as they're scattering they're spreading the good news of the gospel to new places and i, I can only just imagine some of the conversations that took place that that were going on with those who fled Maybe they flee up to Samaria, right? So so maybe they're they're going up north somehow and they become strangers in this town and and the the local townies are saying, nice to meet you. Why, Why have you come? What brings you to this part of the woods? And maybe the one fleeing the persecution says, well, I'm fleeing for my life. How's that for a little hook to pivot on, right? I'm fleeing for my life. Like, what are you talking about? And then... You could witness the gospel freely. This man could have said, you know, I'm from Jerusalem. I uh, was totally content in my religion. I, I love the temple, love the sacrifices, love the people, love the law. But there was a day where this man named Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And, and, and he was preaching good news about some kingdom. He was some religious leader. And I didn't know and understand enough. But the religious leaders hated him. And they killed him. They crucified him. Put him to an awful death. And I couldn't believe it. Here was a a nice, kind teacher, and they crucified him. But then here's the thing. He rose from the dead. I mean, everyone else I've seen crucified had died, and and they stayed dead. But not this man. He rose from the dead. He appeared to these, these disciples of his. And now they're telling everybody about this Jesus who who rose from the dead and they're doing these signs and wonders and like I can't confute this like this is this is really true. And then they began to argue from the scripture from Psalm 16 that prophesied the holy one the Messiah wouldn't undergo decay that he had to be raised from the dead. They started thinking about it. And, and from Psalm 118 they said this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders but has become the cornerstone. And I began thinking about it more. And then they said there's salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. And I came to believe. And I've come to believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. He's the one that all the prophets spoke of. And there are thousands, by the way, in Jerusalem who've come to believe this very thing. And the community there has been incredible. I've never experienced such love like that. And all was going well until just recently, one of our own, Stephen, a godly, spirit-filled man... Was just stoned to death by this religious council. And Stephen was just the first. They're going door to door. They're looking for other believers. And my life is in danger. And I I need to flee lest I be found. And and encounter his same fate. So I left Jerusalem for my own safety. But I tell you what. It's worth it. It is worth it. Because Jesus gave himself for me. And I give myself to Jesus. I will never deny him. I will press on until that final day. But that's why I'm fleeing. Thank you, Mr. Shop Owner. Right? And, and just, just bearing witness of his testimony and of his story about what he experienced there in Jerusalem and why it was that he was scattered and, and coming, coming home. And that's the sort of witnessing opportunities that must have taken place throughout all Judea and Samaria. As these people were traveling into these remote places and, and becoming strangers in these, these parts. And they're being asked about why they're there. Now, it is interesting, right? Did you notice exactly who's doing this preaching? It wasn't the apostles. They were in Jerusalem, and the people were out. It's your average, typical believer who's doing the preaching. Again, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The ones who were scattered were not the apostles. The apostles were, were at home. It's really a call for all of us to do the same I remember talking with a guy who just kind of came to church a little bit. and says, you know, yeah, my old old church, I had a deal. I had a deal with a pastor that I'd talk to people. I'd bring them in, but the pastor would preach to them. I kind of like, oh, well, my duty is to get people to church. So a pastor preaches to them. That's not how the New Testament works. It's that everyone who believes goes out and they just witness. So what acts is calling us to not just have pastors preach the word, but all believers to preach the word. Now, it might be different. It might not be standing up in a church Right? It might be out one on one with people you know in conversations, wherever you happen to mix. But I say all of us ought to be preaching. All of us ought to be teaching the good news. And I, I think one objection might be I'm not trained. <laughs> well, Jesus simply said, Be my witness. You know what trains you to be a witness? Is what you've experienced. You just speak forth from your experience, what you know, and tell others what you know. That's what a witness on the witness stand does. A witness isn't a, a particular expert in anything other than what he, he saw and heard. And so he just shares what he saw and heard. That's all that, that Jesus is calling us to. So just speak with others of your experience with Jesus, how you've trusted him for forgiveness of your sins. Tell others what you read in the Bible this morning, how it's living and, and real in your life. Tell others the thoughts of Jesus that fill your mind. You don't need to be an expert I read something this this week It's really interesting, is that as is uh, you, know, so you go out and you witness to other people, you might be scared a little bit because you, you don't know all their questions. You, you can't answer all their questions. You don't know anything about Islam or intricate things about the law or ethical issues of the day or, or this or that. But you know what? I, this quote said something about how just the fact because you don't know all the answers to all the questions doesn't make your reality any less real. It doesn't make Jesus less real if you can't answer all the objections of people. So you don't need to become a philosophy major to know and refute every argument that everyone will give before you go out and speak to, of Jesus. Right? Just because you don't know the objections, the answers to the objections, doesn't mean that Jesus isn't real and your faith isn't true and that God has forgiven your sin. You guys think about John chapter 9. It's the story of the blind man. He refuted all the learning of the Pharisees without sophisticated arguments, simply his own testimony. When they said, hey, this Jesus, we know he's a sinner. Give glory to God. Say he's a sinner. And the, and the man replied, John 9, 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I don't know the answer to your esoteric question. I don't know the, the laws of causality and how all that works. I don't know how to refute all these views. I don't know. But one thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. And then after that, the argument was too much for them. They couldn't argue with against against him right not because he had all the answers but because he had faith and he was willing to open his mouth and distill it down to this right? i'm trusting in jesus i know i'm forgiven i'm looking for eternal life and joy with him in heaven forever people can't refute that it's just the faith that comes across and god will use you god will use me if we're but willing to open our mouths verse four those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then verse 5, we're introduced to this man named Philip. And in fact, all the way through Acts chapter 8, we're going to hear Philip's story. Acts chapter 7 was all about Stephen, and Acts chapter 8 is all about Philip. Acts chapter 9 is all about Saul, who became Paul. So we're in the Philip territory now, having been with Stephen in in Acts chapter 7. And like Stephen, he was one of the the seven chosen to serve the widows. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, he was Full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of wisdom, and uh, like Stephen as well, he had a a preaching ministry. If you look at verse 5, Philip, right, one of those who were scattered, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So it's interesting here, they went down to Samaria, but Samaria is north, but you go down because Jerusalem is a hill. Everyone goes up to Jerusalem, and you go down to Samaria, you go down to Judea, you go down to the sea, whether that's the Dead Sea or the Mediterranean Sea, you go down there. And so he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So you look here at verse 5 and you say, what was the content of Peter's message? Of Philip's message, rather. He proclaimed to them the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He said what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets is Christ should suffer. He's thus fulfilled that in Jesus. He said, Jesus, uh, of him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And the people who heard this message about Jesus, the Christ, were amazed. And they were captivated there in Samaria as this preaching carried on. It says, look at verse six, the crowds with one accord paid attention. to What was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did? For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. It's very interesting. You think about Philip preaching in Samaria. And the Samaritans were very attentive to his message. You say, why were they attentive? I think it has to do with the fact that the pump was primed. That they hadn't experienced before. That they had still remembered that was, uh, that was helping and emerging them on. Do you remember the event? Who had visited them before? Samaria, these people who are like, like half-breeds, meaning that they were Jews who were intermingled with the Syrians, and the Jews despised them as being impure people. Who went to them before? Jesus did, right? In John chapter 4, that great story about how the disciples were traveling north. They were in Judea. They, they were in the south in Jerusalem, Judea someplace, and they were going way up to Galilee. You can see it up there. And they were traveling, and they went right through Samaria. And... Uh, Along the way, when they passed there, they reached Jacob's well in Sychar. I'm not, yep, you see it right there, Jacob's well in Sychar, is right where they were. Right at the base of Mount Ebal in Gerizim, is kind of right, right where that was. And so they're traveling there, and uh, Jesus was tired, so he sat by the well, and he, he sent his disciples into Sychar to get some food for him, and uh, they went there, and Jesus then encountered this woman who came out alone. And the fact that she came out probably in the midday uh, showed a little bit about her character, right? She wasn't with all the other women. Jesus discerned that a little bit. She'd come out to draw water, and uh, they had conversation back and forth. But in the course of the conversation, Jesus exposed her sin in a very tactful, gentle way. And then he revealed himself to be the Messiah. The first time Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah was to this woman in Samaria, And this woman was astonished. She returned to the city and and she bore witness of Jesus. She said, he told me all that I ever did. And the Samaritan said, really? He knows all about that. So they came out to hear Jesus and they came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah as well. And they professed their faith in him to the woman He says, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world, not because you told us, but because we saw and and we embraced this. They said, we believe Jesus is the savior of the world. And then that's kind of was it. Jesus went on his ministry, and I'm not sure how much light they had there in Samaria, because even Jesus sent out his disciples. He said, don't go to Samaria. He said, go to lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to the, the pure Jews first. Um, and so I'm not sure how much gospel light they had, but they believed in Jesus. They didn't know everything about Jesus, but they believed. They saw his miraculous character. And, and then Philip comes to the setting, and he proclaims, remember that guy? That that met that women at the well, and that all you guys came and you heard and you believed. Well, he's the Christ. He's the one. And as Philip was was there, like he, they were attentive to it. And like Stephen in Acts chapter six, verse eight, we see him doing signs and wonders. Philip too had this gift of healing. He was not only preaching the Christ, and the crowds were paying attention to what was being said, but he also was doing these signs. It says in verse seven, unclean spirits. Crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. He was casting out demons, ordering them to leave, and they're casting out. We saw lame people walking, just like in Acts chapter 3, when the the lame man was there begging at the temple. And, And he couldn't walk, and he was just customarily there, and he'd never walked for 40 years. And Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk. And he got up and walked. And there were people that were lame for many, many years. And Philip must have said the same thing. I, I don't have much. All I have is the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus, walk. And these people got up and they walked. That's first century miracles. What it was? It was amazing. And then they had people who were paralyzed, who were getting up and who were who were walking about. That was Philip's message, as he was proclaiming it and verifying it with signs and, and wonders. And the people of Samaria were ready to receive his message. And the people believed. In fact, you can look over at chapter eight and verse twelve. The people. When they heard, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. And and here you have people believing in Philip and then responding in baptism. Which we'll talk about next week as we speak about that text. Here we see see them believing in Jesus. And then in verse 8, we see the fruit of belief, which is joy. So there was much joy in that city as people are being healed, as people believing the gospel, as people were understanding their sins are forgiven, as eventually we see them being baptized, being filled with the Spirit, like the, the when they when they scattered north to Samaria initially, and we're gonna see a similar thing as they gather to Judea, which you're gonna see people hear the gospel and be saved, and we're gonna see this joy because joy and the gospel always go together. Believing in Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins lightens your load and gives you joy. In our family this week and the worship after dinner we, we just been reading through the psalms we got to psalm 51 this week and uh, you remember what peter what, what uh, david said there after his sin after he's saying purify me with hyssop wash me and i shall be whiter in snow then then he said restore to me the joy of your salvation salvation brings joy when you confess your sins when your sins are forgiven there's a, there's a freedom and there's a joy that comes. It brings joy to the heart. In this case, it says joy came to the entire city because I believe there are many in Samaria who believed in the gospel. I mean, could you just imagine what it would be if many in the Rockford area believed in the gospel? Right? If, a, if a great revival came across our, our, our city, Rockford, Loves Park, Manchester Park, Winnebago, Bullet, whatever. If the gospel really came and many people believed and embrace the gospel as we went about preaching the gospel wouldn't that be a great thing to bring joy who, who, who wants to bring joy to others amen right and, and joy comes through telling them about jesus and how their sins can be forgiven right but in order to tell that joy and to share that joy you need to experience that joy first that comes through faith and believing in jesus and i just commend upon all of you to believe so let's pray that god may do these things Lord, you used the, the death of five uh, missionaries in Ecuador, Father, to uh, um, stir a movement of people going across the world with the gospel. I pray that you'd use the story of Stephen, God, to propel people to get out and to share with others the gospel. There might be much joy. Even as we, as a church, our, our, our whole goal Here's the church. We exist to enjoy your grace, to enjoy your forgiveness, to enjoy your mercy that's at the cross of Christ, that we may extend your glory by sharing that joy with other people. And so, Father, I pray you'd give us a a holy boldness. May we be like these people who are scattered and preaching the word, not not official ordained pastors or ministers or preachers. These were everyday, these were um, carpenters and tent makers and waitresses and all sorts of of, uh, occupations, just typical, typical people, farmers, sellers, vendors, shop owners. These were the people who were sharing the gospel and and speaking to others. And so, God, God, I pray you would embolden us and that you indeed would bring joy to others through believing. So, God, may you be merciful, merciful upon us pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Great. Well, we're going to transition to our first fellowship dinner since uh, March, right? The last one we had was March uh, 2020. So just kind of first Sunday of the month is our first one. We're going to be outside. And so, man, if you want to go downstairs, Chuck will lead you just kind of what what tables you need to gather. We'll put that out there. Um, You should have some food. Just sit down and enjoy some food. You're visiting. You're welcome to join us. Maybe just sit with us and chat. would be wonderful. So let me just pray for our time of fellowship and for our picnic as well. So Father, I pray that we would enjoy our picnic, um, enjoy Ultimate Frisbee, other lawn games that we play. Uh, Father, may it be a time of uh, just encouragement, refreshment, just as the, the summer is coming out and it is warm outside. God, may our May our joy today be evident, um, God, just as we can gather back together, even guide us just in, in future weeks and months, what, what things mean with the, the uh, availability of the vaccine and, uh, God, help us to know how it is that we ought to respond as a church, to really think through, um, God, how we can restore some unity at our church, um, God, just uh, with uninhibited fellowship, God, we thank you for all the food that you provided for all of us, and, and may this afternoon be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.